Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the Technology Policy Institute's podcast. Today is Thursday, May 28, 2020. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI. I'm joined by Tom Leonard, Senior Fellow and President Emeritus. Today, we are honored to have Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser. Phil Weiser was sworn in as the state's 39th Attorney General on January 8, 2019. Before running for office, he served as the Hatfield Professor of Law and Dean of the University of Colorado Law School, where he founded the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship and co-chaired the Colorado Innovation Council. He's also served as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice and Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation in the Obama Administration's National Economic Council. He served in President Bill Clinton's Department of Justice as Senior Counsel to the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division advising on telecommunications matters. And before that, he had also served as law clerk to Justices Byron White and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Supreme Court. And everybody who knows Phil knows he is a force of nature in keeping so many things running and writing so much and contributing to so many aspects of law and economics and technology. Phil, thanks for, thanks for joining us. It's really a pleasure to be with you guys. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was a little bit about federalism. So you've, you've been an advocate for a long time for a cooperative federalism where states and, and the federal government work together in creative ways. How do you feel about that now? Do you think that it's alive and well, or are we moving more towards an era of kind of adversarial dual federalism? We're, of course, not going to know what now looks like until long a time from now. A great story on this, by the way. Henry Kissinger is with Chow and Lai as part of the opening up of the China-U.S. relationship. And it says, what do you think about the French Revolution? And Chow and Lai says, it's too soon to tell. So that gives you a Chinese perspective on history. The American experiment had federalism baked in from the beginning to take a often used phrase that Justice Kennedy said, our constitution split the atom of sovereignty. The classic idea was you could only have one sovereign. We have two, the United States of America as a sovereign state, nation, and states which retain their own sovereignty. That principle as captured beautifully in United States versus New York. Justice O'Connor articulates the federal government cannot commandeer states to make them do things that to the people of a state you might think, oh, our state is doing this. But really, it's not the state that's doing it. It's the federal government commandeering the states. And that's a principle that I would say is alive and well, the anti-commandeering principle. We indeed fought for it in a recent case where the federal government was trying to misuse a grant program, which had never had strings attached, wasn't authorized to have strings attached, to impose certain requirements on us as Coloradans that we didn't want to do vis-a-vis -vis our state and local law enforcement. So that principle is at the foundation of cooperative federalism. And the reason is because for a state to cooperate with the federal government, that has to result from a choice. So as you both know well, the Telecommunications Act invited states to cooperate with the federal government in implementing this whole new competitive landscape. What was critical was that states could opt out and say, I'm not cooperating. And they have that choice. What the feds had to do is step in to superintend the regulatory regime themselves. Happened once, by the way, Virginia, I don't know if you guys remember, the FCC had to oversee interconnection agreements because the State Public Utility Commission said, we're not playing. That was an architecture that I believe is healthy. The states are invited to cooperate, and the states are free to say, we're not doing it, and the states have their protection against commandeering. Whether we are seeing an erosion of that 
it's too soon to tell. Um, I am fighting for that principle. I'm fighting for that model. I believe it produces better results. So let, let me ask you about um, two possible tensions with it. One is, this is sort of pre-COVID, so we might ask whether this has changed since. But with the digital economy, there are lots of arguments across issues, privacy, antitrust, all of those things we go into more detail later, that there should be a single federal rule. The argument is always, we don't want to see a patchwork of rules. Always the word patchwork comes up a lot, contrary to a lot of things that you're, you're arguing for. But if we were to follow that logic, it would erode lots of state power. But you can make an, an argument that almost anything having to do with the digital economy involves interstate commerce. The other side, though, is the government, the federal government's less than strong reaction to the pandemic, where it's left the states to deal with it on its own. What do you make of those two things? I'll give you two economic responses. You're probably familiar with both theories. One is a theory of the second best, and the second is it depends. So first, the theory of the second best. Yes, you are right. In an ideal world, we'd have a first-rate national response to the pandemic where testing capability was developed by the federal government and the states were working collaboratively following the lead of the feds. That's not the world we're in right now. We're in the theory of the second best, where the states have effectively been on their own and have been able to, in many cases, including Colorado, reasonably rise to this challenge. That's actually the case with, right now, data privacy and data security. In the best world, the first best world, we would have what President Obama called for, which is some form of a federal privacy bill of rights. And we articulated it based on broad principles. There was going to be a lot of room for tailoring. But it would say things like, if a company is collecting the data of a consumer, the consumer has the right to know that, the right to know whether it's being sold, how long it's being stored. And basically, companies would be prompted to be mindful about how they manage data. That is a protective regime that I think would serve consumers and indeed the digital economy well. It's never been adopted at the federal level. What's that created? A vacuum. And so states are now doing their own data privacy, which is not the first best world. But it's probably the second. States are acting unwisely. But it is, in my mind, worse to have no one doing anything. And so states filling this vacuum. The second point that I would make here is it depends. There are some areas where the states are not, let's say, implicating these digital interconnected concerns. So collection of data happens across state lines, no question. Thus, the theory of the second best. But there are other cases, delivery of healthcare, for example, where it's inherently local. When you show up to a clinic and you're on a Medicare Advantage plan, you're in Colorado Springs, that's your market. This has been litigated as an antitrust matter. It is a local product market. It's not a nationwide product market. In that case, having us as the Colorado Attorney General's Office able to step in and oversee antitrust issues, including mergers, are fundamentally local issues, provides a valuable backstop and can in some cases provide local tailoring opportunities, or even the government could, federal government could just say, we're not going to bother you guys take care of it. And so I don't think federalism is, let's say, swamped or replaced by the digital economy. What I would say is, ideally, you have this done thoughtfully, where you have national leadership where it makes sense. And if that national leadership doesn't emerge, then federalism is at least a area of the second best. Alternatively, there are going to be lots of areas where the 
local and state governments are naturally playing the role, and it's good to have them there. Getting back to privacy for a second, as you know, one of the major, perhaps the major impediment to to enactment of a federal law is the issue of uh, of state preemption, where there are obviously there are strong strong feelings on both sides. What's your view? If the federal law is passed, should it preempt the states or or not? I'm a big fan of what happened in Dodd Frank, where we have preemptive national standards, but state attorneys general can enforce them. And part of the reason here is we're seeing this right now, actually, with the CFPB among other agencies, if you get a federal agency that is inert or is not committed to the mission, if you put all the eggs in the federal basket, again, states might look better on a theory of the second best. But if you can figure out a way to square that circle where states can still play a valuable role, even with national standards, you may get the best of all worlds, which is you build yourself some redundancy, some resilience without potentially creating the chaos of multiple standards. So that's what happened in that law I actually could see that happening in a privacy law. And obviously, it's a case-by-case because there's some cases where there are harms that are different locally. In those sorts of cases, preemption, I don't believe, has the same force behind it. But in a case like privacy, where, again, as Scott noted, it's hard to comply with a whole bunch of different rules, Mm -hmm. there could be real efficiencies to having a national standard. If and when that's appropriate, I would like to see state AGs having enforcement authority. So let me go back to your example about healthcare for a second. So like you said, healthcare is, is very local. And when somebody has an emergency, you're not going to be choosing among hospitals around the country where to go. You're going to go, you know, some balance between what's the closest and what's the best hospital within some very small distance from your house. And so you know, hospital mergers have been a big deal. But the pandemic might be changing some of that, not the hospital aspect of it. But people can now do more telemedicine across state lines. And that sort of upended some of the state licensing rules. You know, how would you go about thinking about that aspect of it? I mean, we've got state licensure issues and now possibly a changing market definition for at least some parts of medicine. Beauty of antitrust is it's fact-specific. And insofar as we really see telemedicine as a viable alternative, that changes how we define markets. I don't think you're going to see telemedicine surgeries anytime soon. So to your point, if you have to get some kind of procedure, I don't think you're going to get it via telemedicine. So you have to define which markets are subject. And similar, if you have to pick up certain drugs, pharmaceuticals that have to be authenticated that it's actually you, it may not be wise to have those go through the mails, for example. Um, We've seen a huge problem with opioids where wrong people get those drugs, for example. So I I do think there's situations where you're not going to see it done via broadband internet connections. Insofar it is, uh, that that will affect how you find the the market. With respect to the role of local oversight, I think it's important that we be disciplined about what the markets are. I also think you raise a real important point, which is about licensing. That is going to be an interesting challenge because Insofar as you have someone doing telemedicine in Colorado, I believe the current expectations are that they be licensed to practice medicine in Colorado, even if they're doing their medicine from Kansas. And a quick question here is always going to be, how are licensing schemes operating? Are they operating in the way they're intended to ensure quality control, oversight, or are they 
unfortunate barriers to entry. And that's going to be an ongoing conversation. We can get back to antitrust for a minute. Your office is involved in some of the biggest antitrust issues uh, around these days. Uh, Google case, Google investigation, Facebook investigation. By the way, if you want to give us some, you know, little prediction about what's going to happen, I'd be happy to hear that. Well, first I'll start, Tom, by commending you. You you can't be commended enough for this. During the 1990s, you stuck your neck out about the Microsoft antitrust case as an antitrust case worth bringing, and that was a model of a good Section 2 case. And just to give people a reminder who weren't as familiar, you famously had Bill Gates saying to Netscape, you can sell your company to me because I see it as being a threat to our monopoly, or we will cut off your air supply. That sort of predatory behavior is antithetical to the antitrust laws. It hurts consumers and hurts innovation. And so the question in both Facebook and Google, two of the companies you've mentioned and where on the executive committee of both those investigations, did anything similar happen in these cases? Has Facebook or Google engaged in predatory tactics? And the challenge of antitrust is to sort the wheat from the chaff, which is legitimate business, efficiency-enhancing conduct versus predatory conduct, which has no purpose other than to undermine rivals. We're in the middle of that, and as we get to the other side, we'll be making public where we come out. And this is a great virtue of our antitrust system. We can't just say what we think and then all of a sudden the companies have to react. We've got to prove our case in court. So that's a discipline that we take very seriously and I have great appreciation for. And so unfortunately, all I can say is stay tuned. Let me ask you about how we do antitrust in this country. Obviously, it gets to this federalism issue. I mean, if we were designing a, you know, a system de novo, do you think we would design a system that had two federal antitrust agencies with overlapping jurisdiction plus 50 plus other antitrust agencies basically dealing with the same issues? Is that a good way to go about it? I believe it was James Madison who said, if men were angels, there would be no need for government. And he also said, ambition shall check ambition. So the design of our institutions reflects a skepticism of concentrated power and a skepticism of what James Landis believed the New Deal would be, which is that we'd have great experts leading top-down institutions who'd always get things right. And the fact that we have this fragmented antitrust system can be criticized, Tom, the line of criticism that you were invoking as incoherent. An alternative explanation is it is more resilient more redundant, and more adaptive. And what I would say the ultimate check is the courts, because we have to adopt judicially manageable standards that are in place by judges. And so ultimately, I have the right as Colorado's Attorney General to bring a case in federal or in state court under state antitrust law. I have to prove that case, and that can contribute to the development of antitrust law. The fact that I have that right, and so do 49 others, or 50 if you include DC AGs, is a strength to our system. There can be diversity of views as things percolate up. I believe in a world where you don't have perfect knowledge by a supremely expert enforcer, this is actually a fairly adaptive system. Europe takes the opposite point of view. So if you take your argument to the logical extreme, Europe says we want to have a central regulatory authority 
that handles antitrust issues. And when we decide something, that is the law. And although you can appeal it, it's like appealing a regulation, which gets deference and takes a lot of time. And so I think our system actually has been very adaptive, even though it provides, let's say, more checks and balances and uncertainty in the result. I kind of agree, but especially in this digital age when all of these companies are, you know, not even national, they're global in scope. It somehow seems uh, a little bizarre almost that a small entity could challenge a business practice or a merger or something that affects a company that is operating and, and consumers of that company that are operating on a global scale. Tom, that same principle is true if Israel challenges a multinational company's merger. Yeah, that's true. It tries to hold the merger. So we are having to adapt to this issue and this is where trying to build harmonization is important. And what happens as a practical matter with states is we do, wherever possible, multi-state investigations. And we have to do that harmonization within our working group so as to avoid the spectacle of what you're talking about. And what can happen more likely is the feds and the states or coalition states part ways. That happened in the Sprint T-Mobile case. And that gets worked out by the courts less likely to get multiple different states doing essentially different things on the same issue. Do you think we have a general problem of under-enforcement or too lax uh, enforcement in the antitrust area? Yes. And if you say to me, is the problem that antitrust enforcement has been too robust or is too robust or not robust enough, here's what I would point you to. And you can talk about different industries, but let's talk about airlines, obviously pre-COVID. We have seen concentration in almost every industry such that our economy is more concentrated now than it's probably ever been, which is not healthy from an innovation standpoint, consumer welfare standpoint, or an innovation standpoint. In airlines, we had a great natural experiment. A bunch of mergers went through. On the other side of those mergers, and I'm forgetting the exact years, Tom, but people can look it up, a huge drop in oil prices. In a competitive industry, if you have critical wholesale inputs, and I don't know the numbers, but let's just call it 25% of the cost structure of airlines is fuel. If that went down by a substantial amount, you would think you'd see prices go down to consumers. That didn't happen at all in airlines. It happened at the pump. So prices went down in the retail pump, but they didn't go down in airlines. And literally, there was a fun New York Times article about this. They gave away free peanuts and made record profits. That can only happen when there's so much concentration. And this is what Fred Kahn was afraid of. Fred Kahn said, we have to get rid of the stasis of regulation, which is actually helping incumbents and prohibiting entry and stopping innovation. But we need sound antitrust enforcement so we have sufficient rivalry to protect consumers. In many markets, we don't have a lot of rivalry in airlines. Prices have gone up and consumers are worse off. And we can talk about different sectors not all sectors I paint with the same brush, but we are seeing more four to three mergers for a reason, even three to two mergers, because the economy has gotten more and more concentrated. Businesses are seeing how much they can push this. And the job of the trust is to say, if we are really worried about prices going up, innovation going down, quality going down, we've got to stop that concentration. So like you said, everything is fact-specific. And I don't know if you've looked in more detail at the airline industry, but entry recently hasn't been particularly successful. At least one regional airline tried to launch on its own and it didn't, it didn't make it. Why do you think that is? Is it because 
something about the, the incumbent airlines makes it impossible? Is it because, you know, gate slots are controlled in some weird way? Is it because we don't let foreign airlines compete here? What do you think was driving it? Part of what you're getting at, which is super important for an agenda, our nation's economic policy should include a commitment to competition policy, innovation policy. When I was at the National Economic Council, this started getting more and more attention. Jason Furman ultimately launched a great initiative around this. And I would commend this because you pointed to a key regulatory point. To the extent the regulatory system reinforces the dominance of existing companies, we have to be concerned about this and we need competition advocacy. Slots for airlines is a real cause for concern. You could say the same thing about Spectrum for wireless. Do we have regulatory structures that are not facilitating entry? I do think that is a big point. A second point, we got to look back to the 1990s when there were a lot of upstarts. And one of the phenomena that happened was predatory pricing. And I mentioned mergers before and my concern with a lack of, let's call it, vigilance on merger review. My second big concern for antitrust in airlines would be the failure of predatory pricing. And here it was the failure of the courts in applying an overly conservative standard in a case involving American Airlines and I believe it was Vanguard Airlines, where we saw a level of response to an upstart that I believe can only be explained by a desire to exclude the rival. And part of the challenge here was if you look at marginal cost as the critical way and you define it sufficiently narrowly, as the court did, airlines have such high fixed costs, such low marginal costs, it's impossible to bring a case. I think the better methodology would have been, did the airline do something that vis-a-vis the other use of the airplane caused it to make less money? And Doug Melnick would call this the profit sacrifice test, which is a way to think about monopolization concern. And that test wasn't used appropriately in that case. They were allowed to get away with what I believe was predatory behavior. And that was also important in limiting the level of rivalry that we otherwise could have in airlines. Then the final issue, and this is one that is just going to be hard, uh, there are clear advantages of scale. We have issues like frequent flyer programs, people develop loyalty, brand name awareness. Those are earned advantages that can happen. That's not an antitrust concern. And in some cases, that will explain levels of concentration. I discovered my life improved once I started ignoring frequent flyer programs, <laughs> just going with whatever the best one was at the time, best flight was at the time. Since we're talking economics, you recently signed a letter that brings us right into sort of about this classic economics teaching issue, which is price gouging. You joined um, several other attorneys general to ask Amazon and other online sellers to, you know, to, to ban price gouging. But price gouging is complicated, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, I just as a person, it gets your blood boiling when you see prices jacked up in an emergency. But, you know, on the other hand, high prices encourage entry. And if you keep the price low, odds are the good just won't be there when you want it, um, rather than it being there at a very high price. So, you know, you must have been thinking all this through as you, you know, signed the letter in this sort of odd situation. But, you know, how did you, you know, what did you think about? How did you balance these things? Appreciate the chance to talk about this. When I talk about price gouging, I invariably endeavor to differentiate what I'll call the normal operation of supply and demand from opportunistic selling and extreme price gouging. 
What do I mean by that? First, you have to set the benchmark. So a problematic price gouging situation is, oh, we're in a crisis. Demand went way up. Supply went down. Prices are now more than 10% than they were before the crisis. In almost all cases, that's normal supply and demand. That's what the market does. However, here's what is not normal. You are in a situation you desperately need a good. A opportunistic seller sells it to you 800% more than a reputable seller would sell it to you at the same time. And so the challenge for enforcement and for price gouging is to sort the wheat from the chaff. And as we see potential price gouging cases come out of this crisis, the challenge will be to say, are these cases focused on someone who acted in a way that we all would say our blood's boiling? They were trying to take advantage of somebody. The most extreme example would be you're bleeding and someone says, oh, I'll sell you a Band-Aid. It's going to cost you $100 because you need it right now. That's unfair. And then this is a point that not either of you, but there's some economists who would say, never, ever, ever do anything about price gouging. And what that misses is fairness has to be baked into our system so that people know who they can trust. Now, the case here for price gouging is not as strong as, let's say, them going after lemons, people who'd sell a used car or they didn't disclose a harm. But I do think part of what the goal of reasonable enforcement related to price gouging is we need to build trust that what's happening in the economy isn't opportunistic taking advantage of people when they're vulnerable. So that's how I think about price gouging. If you read the letter closely, you'll note that the benchmarks are to reasonable sellers at the time at a price well in excess of what they're selling. So is your office bringing price gouging cases currently? We are looking at some cases. We have not been actually yet in court on this issue. If and when time comes that we have to do so, we will need to make our case. And are there laws on the books already that define price gouging? Colorado has a situation that's like a few other states, and this is an important, valuable point to make. Our laws are not specifically tailored to price gouging. We don't have any artificial percent increase over the status quo ante. Our laws are general UDAP, which is often the catch-all phrase. Uh, In our case, it's unfair, deceptive, unconscionable trade practice. So if I want to go after price gouging, I would say that person who sold that Band-Aid or fill-in-the-blank, hand sanitizer, red ventilator, acted in a way that was unfair and unconscionable. And I would make that in contrast to people who did it in a way that was fair and appropriate. So let me go back to that Band-Aid description. Let, let, me, let me play this terrible economist and mostly reveal why everyone hates us. But you know, let's say that this guy, is, um, he's bleeding and he needs a Band-Aid. The person who has Band-Aids has been told to only sell them for some reasonable price which probably means that by the time this guy needs the Band-Aid, there are no Band-Aids. So, you know, and if he'd been charging $100 Band-Aid up to that point, people who just want to have Band-Aids around just in case bought them, and this guy doesn't have one, right? That's the classic argument. Is that just too hypothetically silly given the state of our supply chains and, and so on? Like any good economist, you're starting from an assumption, and the assumption that I would unmask is 
that you have a seller who is intending to be responsible and a repeat player. My assumption is, and I think my assumption is borne out right now, in the time of a crisis like this, you get a whole bunch of irresponsible sellers who enter into the market opportunistically, often saying, how do I make the quickest buck, even if I am harming people, acting in a morally offensive way, and my view of consumer protection is a fundamentally conservative and foundational principle. And Tim Uris gave a great speech that conference I think Tom hosted way back when. It's really important that if someone is acting in that way, you often hear the fly-by-night operator example, that we have a way to come down on them. Because part of the problem for everyone in the economy is when you get opportunistic sellers, irresponsible sellers, and they're able to get away with it, it just erodes trust more generally. So an example in, in our current situation may be that Purell raises the price, and that's just more supply and demand. They've been in the market for a long time. They're going to be in the market for a long time. The guy who drove around to rural areas and bought up all the hand sanitizer at dollar stores and then tried to sell it at a 300% markup made it not available to the rural areas anymore and is sort of more of a fly-by-night. Well, you got chances are, by the way, it's, it's worse than that. Chances are he's mm-hmm. diluted the product, so it's not as high-quality product as well. And you'll often see price gouging go hand-in-hand with deception about what's being sold either. You can also replace face masks in this hypothetical as well. A lot of times people are selling face masks and they don't do what people purport them to do. Or we actually have our cases on this, Tom, testing. People say, oh, we're giving you an FDA-approved test. And of course, no, it hasn't been approved by the FDA. They're lying about it. And we try just as a first-order approximation to say to people, you need to be reasonable. You have to be truthful. And if you act deceptively, we're going to call you on it. We're running out of time, but I wanted to, first of all, congratulations on arguing before the Supreme Court. It must be a a nice uh, accomplishment, nice feeling. What was that like? This is a very non-economic question, but, you know, you're standing there talking to the Supreme Court justices, trying to convince them of your case. Well, you know, what are you thinking about when you're you're doing it? What's it like answering their questions? So the pandemic has thrust all of us into unfamiliar surroundings, and the Supreme Court did not have this over Zoom. They instead had it over the telephone, so sticking with a 20th century technology. And they had to make some adaptations. And this was a really neat thing to get really meta here, guys, and something you'll appreciate. Larry Lessig, who we all know from the technology world, code and other laws of cyberspace, is a great work about the internet economy and talks about architecture and how you can make architectural choices either enabled or disabled by technology. And so I've thought a lot about this during this time. We're not able to do normal things in physical space, but we're able to create virtual space. And and Larry in his book talks a lot about then virtual games that people play. I think Second Life was one of those games that was happening back then. And the Supreme Court had to re-architect how you did Supreme Court arguments, not doing it in person. And part of the architecture that was really interesting was it was a structured conversation where each justice got a certain amount of time to have a dialogue with me, as opposed to the normal free-for-all. And I liked it on a couple levels. First, and this doesn't get talked about enough, for introverts out there, The free-for-all is pretty intimidating, both for judges and also for advocates. Clarence Thomas rarely asks questions at arguments, and that is a loss for arguments because he asks great questions. 
How do I know that? Because in the May session, with a different architecture, this more structured format, Justice Thomas asked questions at every argument. And in my argument, he asked what was a, let's call it a heartwarming question. And it was heartwarming on two levels. One is because it made my case so well. B, because it invoked one of my favorite all-time characters, Frodo Baggins. And the issue in the case that I argued was whether or not electors were free agents, as Larry Lessig, as it turned out, was arguing, or whether electors were potential proxy voters on behalf of the people of the state. And I argued that Colorado views our electors as proxy voters and requires them to vote the way the people of Colorado voted. In doing so, I said, if Colorado could not exercise that control and electors were free agents, then you could have bribed electors. And Justice Thomas asked the question, could an elector vote for Frodo Baggins on the theory of Larry Lessig's case? And I said, if states have no power to remove electors, then yes, elector could vote for Frodo Baggins or in violation of the 14th Amendment for someone who engaged in a rebellion. And that sort of engaged conversation happened with each justice. It also gave me more of a chance to make my case in a search for truth as opposed to a firing squad where it feels like the justices are maybe arguing more with each other than engaging in dialogue with the advocates. So this change of architecture and format, I actually enjoyed. And to make it even better, they broadcasted or carried it live on C-SPAN. And so there was much more awareness and engagement than there otherwise would have been. So people are asking this question across everything. We, of course, don't know the answers. But will some of this remain after the pandemic? Will this format, which seems to bring out so much more people, including Justice Thomas, which is amazing to see him asking questions. Will any of it continue? I do think we are going to have a lot to reassess and a lot to take stock of once we're on the other side of this pandemic. There will have been a lot of experimentation. There will have been a lot of limitations in our current economic system. And we're going to need to look at both ends. What did we create new muscle around, new opportunities around? And what was shown to be weaknesses? So, for example, on the weaknesses front, supply chains and a lack of resilience, whether it's on testing capacity or food in some cases, is going to merit reflection. Are we stretching our supply chain so thin as to undermine resilience? And I think you're seeing some discussion about resilience as a value that you wouldn't otherwise see. And then with respect to doing things virtually, I do believe we're going to get a lot of questions about, wait a minute, do we need to have the meeting in person or can we do it virtually? It worked fine before virtually. Or the Supreme Court changes format. We learned from that. That'll be up to the Supreme Court. I am a fan of experimentation, and we certainly are being forced to experiment right now. We're out of time. It's probably a good place to leave it. Phil, thanks so much for, for speaking with us. It's always fun to talk with you. I really appreciate you taking your time to do it. I feel the same way. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Take care now. Take care. Bye-bye. You too.